Greetings. You're listening to the Bonnie Boat Sailing Podcast. My name is Chris Smith. Whether you're a grizzled old salt, pining for the days of wire rope halyards, or a greenhorn, wondering what the hell a dolphin striker is, this is the podcast that seeks to fill the need for everybody's third most favorite pastime. That is, talking about sailing. Welcome to this week's episode of the Bonnie Boat Sailing Podcast. If you're just joining us, this first batch of episodes chronicles the refit and subsequent adventures of my wife Ryan and I aboard our 1967 Pearson Ariel Firefly. We spent two years on the hard fixing up the old girl and took her down the ICW from Virginia to the Florida Keys and back. Cheers. All right. So last time we did this, uh, we were talking about Charleston, and I thought it went pretty well, and it was fun. Yeah. So uh, this is episode eleven, a day on the waterway, December twenty fifteen. We, I, get up before dawn and start getting the boat ready. I get the fuel tank hooked up, untie the anchor snubber, and start the engine. Usually the racket of the motor is enough to drive Ryan from her bunk, but if that doesn't work, the chain rattling down the hosepipe usually is. If it's blowing a bit, or there's current involved, Ryan grabs the tiller and keeps the boat off the rocks while I get the anchor out of the bottom. Once we're properly underway, Ryan gets the coffee going and fixes breakfast while I steer the boat. And this is usually one of my favorite times of the day. Uh, and that's a feeling that has stuck <laughs> with me. Uh, I can kind of still conjure that up. Uh, you know, just a cool mo- morning in the late fall, sipping on some uh, some French press coffee, cruising down the ICW headed south. It was, uh, it was good stuff. Yeah, I think you failed to mention hitting snooze six times before you get up, though. <laughs> yeah, that did happen most, that did happen most <laughs> days. And you leaving your phone with your alarm all the way aft when we slept all the way forward. Yeah, the, the, yeah. And it being cold. It being cold. It being cold and not wanting to get out of the bunk. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> uh, our routine usually involves uh, involved me driving and Ryan navigating. Uh, she checks the chart and the GPS. Uh, I keep an eye on our speed and currents and such. And I keep an eye on Ryan, too. Har, har. <laughs> uh, for the most part, navigation is pretty straightforward. Recent groundings notwithstanding. And we'll get into that <laughs> in a second. Um, occasionally, there will be a fun little twist, like range markers. Uh, so range markers, I'd never heard of them prior to going doing the ICW trip. They're, they're large-ish nav aids, uh, and it's a marker that consists of a vertical white stripe in the center framed by two vertical red stripes. Uh, and the markers come in sets of two, and one is usually a few hundred yards behind the other. Uh, and they're used when there's a long straight channel with no red or green nav aids to, to mark the edges of the channel. So as you're, as you're going down like a straightaway, you keep the two markers in line, and as long as the markers are in line, you're in the center of the channel. Uh, it's pretty cool. I always liked when we came upon a stretch stretch with them. It was, just, it was a different way different way of doing it. It was neat. I'm trying to remember the names of some of the spots where they had those, but I can't. I don't remember either. Um, yeah, it was mostly down, down in South Carolina and Georgia, I think. Okay. Um, and, but there's only a few of them left um, that are being actively maintained. Uh, which I assume is because everyone has electronic charts, although I, I don't know that that's the reason. <laughs> <laughs> Negotiating bridge openings is another common daily activity. At first, it was something I was stressed about, uh, but it's really pretty simple. Uh, Ryan calls the bridge on the radio and asks them to open. If the bridge has restricted openings, then we try and time it so you show up just as the gates are going down. 
Uh, if either of those things don't work, <laughs> we drive around in circles and try not to hit the big boats and wait for the bridge to open. It's always fun when you have to throw an outboard into reverse to try not to hit another boat or a bridge. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the Pierce scenario doesn't doesn't back up well being a full keel with a big like kind of barn door style rudder all but we did have the secret the secret weapon is that outboard in the well which you can rotate 180 mm-hmm. degrees so we kind of had a stern thruster uh, which, <laughs> but it took it took me a while to get the hang of that and uh that certainly especially early on in the trip was not was not in the bag of tricks right <laughs> with the icw's twists and turns ditches and canals bridges and locks and general narrowness there's not much opportunity to move the boat under sail, but we've been motor sailing every chance we get. It took a few weeks to sort out the best way to do this because our main foresail is a big Genoa, a real deck sweeper. And I, I think I mentioned this previously in a previous episode, but it's pretty hard to see around the Genoa, uh, which was making me jumpy in the narrow ICW channels. Meaning making me jumpy. Well, I, and, and both, <laughs> both of us. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we would compromise. Uh, we put up the working jib, which is meant for winds in the 20 knot range, uh, but we can see. Uh, and even in light, light winds, the jib gives us a nice boost, uh, which has been crucial in some areas with fast flowing tidal currents. And motor sailing downwind um, often gave us as much as an extra half a knot, which over the course of a day would make a significant difference. Um, and then going to windward in any kind of chop, uh, Pretty much, we had to put put up a reefed main for some extra horsepower. With you know, we have a the, the outboard six horsepower, and uh, in any kind of significant wind or chop, it just we just get slowed down to a dead stop. So sometimes it would it, you know it made the difference between being able to make slow progress versus none no progress at all. Plus, it just made the ride more comfortable. It sort of steadied us out a yeah, little bit. Yeah, big time. Um, and I feel the need to to mention that we named the working jib. Jibford. Oh, yeah. You named yes. it Jibford. 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 <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Very nice. Um, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you did. I love that tiny little sail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, while underway, I collect photos of sunken shrimp boats. Ryan takes pictures of me steering Firefly. I take pictures of Ryan steering Firefly, and we just take in the scenery. Watching the flora and fauna change as we head south has been a highlight of the trip. We thought our very loud outboard engine would scare away any and all wildlife we would potentially see on our trip down the ICW. However, noisemaker aside, we've been lucky enough to see some pretty cool animals so far. Yesterday, Chris saw a huge sea turtle right on the surface of the water just south of St. Augustine. We were caught unprepared and didn't manage to get a photo, but how cool is that? Starting somewhere in North Carolina, we got to the point where we started seeing dolphins every single day, multiple times per day. It's weird to think that I see dolphins about 10 times as often as I see squirrels these days. Getting a good photo of a dolphin has proven tricky for us. Neither of us is necessarily a pro, but we managed to snap a few the other day while we were anchored at Cumberland Island in Georgia. We've also seen all kinds of cool birds on this trip, some of which have been heading south like us. Cormorants have been everywhere, all the way from Virginia down to Florida. They often sit on the ICW navigation markers and spread their wings out to dry after a dive for food. We've been lucky enough to see bald eagles on several occasions. Pelicans were dive bombing for fish on Mobjack Bay at the beginning of the trip and have showed up here and there as we've moved south. We had one hangout alongside Firefly for a good 10 or 15 minutes while we were in Swansboro, North Carolina. 
We've also seen a ton of great blue herons, or GBHs, as Chris calls them, (laughs) and great egrets. I also kind of freaked out when we were anchored off Plum Orchard, also on Cumberland Island, Georgia, and I saw two pink birds land in a tree already filled with other birds. I was convinced that we were seeing wild pink flamingos. However, the crew of Whisper, which I think Chris had mentioned them Possibly a couple times in previous episodes. Yeah, we kept, well, we kept continued, you know, kept yeah. on hanging out with them on, on the course of the Very trip. good people. Um, the crew of Whisper identified them as roseate spoonbills and very kindly gave us a bird field guide. We saw wild horses on the shore of Cumberland Island. And I would say the most surprising sighting we've had was of wild boars on a tiny little marshy island in South Carolina. I heard a crashing sound, looked over, and saw two dark shapes on the island. At first, I thought they were black bears. Such a Virginia girl, I guess. And then realized they were boars. So we wrote this when we were just a little bit south of St. Augustine. Uh, and so from there, we, we saw all kinds of cool stuff down down South Florida and down in the yeah. Keys. Um, I guess most notably manatees. Manatees. <laughs> They're so cool. They're very cool. Uh, I guess we saw, we saw them in the Mosquito Lagoon for the first time. Just a little, yeah, like barely. Yeah, like you could see them kind of... Kind of come up to the surface just a bit and then they go back down and then we really really had a close encounter with manatee um in tavernier down the keys. in the keys yeah and they are they're crazy looking animals yeah we saw him fart yeah we saw yeah i saw a manatee <laughs> fart <laughs> um which was pretty foul it's gross <laughs> really funny though um but they're just so they're very they're very different from anything else they're so they're just they're weird yeah they're weird critters i like them they're, yeah but very very uh kind of seem seemingly gentle and at least mm-hmm. sluggish at any rate yeah <laughs> uh and uh and actually supposedly there was a manatee at the uh in the marina up here in, that's in virginia right. that's right a couple years ago it's a very lost manatee <laughs> um and then speaking of lost mammals we saw a seal <laughs> In North Carolina, on our way northbound, yeah, just hanging out, just hanging out on some mud. Yeah, it didn't look like a very happy seal. No, it looked like a, a sad, lost, maybe sickly seal. Yeah, a few other people we talked to had seen the same seal, so I think it was hanging out there for a little while. Yeah, and maybe, thing. maybe, and maybe they ranged that far south. I don't really know. I, don't I think. Know. Do you remember where it was? South of Hatteras, wasn't it? It was. Oh, what is the name of that long, skinny sound? Bogue sound. Yeah, it's south of Hatteras, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, right before we got to um, Beaufort, North Carolina. So definitely, is when we yeah. Saw it, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Hatteras is a big kind of you know you get different different critters north and south of Hatteras, but yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. <laughs> Seal. Seal, um, and then I know um, one of the things that Ryan you took took away from the trip in a, in, a, in a big way was is just kind of a. An appreciation. I love and, birds. Yeah. Chris and, thinks it's weird, but I was really <laughs> excited seeing all the different birds. Um, sort of the types that you would see change as you move south and then back north again. And um, I don't know. I just think they're really cool animals. And waterfowl um, in particular, I find to be pretty cool. So I loved getting to see different birds. Every day, it really, it made me realize also how much time I was spending outdoors. I don't know, just it made me very aware of um, just how much time outside we got. You yeah. know, like yeah. I think maybe not having a a dodger or any kind of shade also just 
it just made you feel like you were in nature. Yeah. A lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. That was definitely generally a highlight of the trip too, was just having the time mm-hmm. and having, and the, and the pace kind of lends yeah. itself to paying attention to that sort of thing. It's like walking yeah. to Florida. And back, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, like if you were going to hike the Appalachian trail, maybe a similar kind of thing where you're like outside and you're moving kind of slowly and yeah. things are slowly changing as you. As yeah. You yeah, for sure. Let's go. I haven't really thought about that. Yeah. So at the end of the day, we generally try and get the anchor down with a few hours of light left, time enough to clean up and get dinner started. I like going on dinghy explorations, and Ryan likes to crochet. Her goal is to crochet a granny square a day and make a sailing trip blanket. Pretty cool, I say. Crack open a beer, watch the sun go down. Do it again tomorrow. So at the beginning of the episode, we mentioned going aground, uh, and this was the first and really only time we went aground on the whole trip. Uh, and we were headed south out of St. Augustine, and we had decided to stop at Fort Matanzas for the evening, which is an inlet. Uh, it's a, it's the Matanzas River is kind of the, the section that the ICW goes down south of St. Augustine, and there's, a, and there's an inlet to the ocean uh, at Fort Matanzas. Um, and it was the one time that Skipper Bob done us wrong, uh, but honestly, it's on us uh, because that spot is, is near an inlet, and the channel shifts around all the time, so we probably should have sought out some local knowledge. Uh, the Skipper Bob books had some outdated information, but certainly at this point in the trip, we should have known better. But at any rate, we turned at the spe- specified marker and promptly ran aground. Um, it was the first time that we had, had run aground, so we got, got a little excited at first. Uh, tried to back the boat off, didn't work. Um, I thought I could spin the boat around on the keel by turning the outboard in the well, and, and, and kind of pivoting the boat. Uh, so I, I did that and I gunned it and the boat didn't move, but the outboard jumped off the mount in the, uh, in the well, which was undesirable. Uh, so that happened to us a few times on the trip. Yeah. Finally, finally I got around to just really just cranking on the bolts. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, so we got that squared away and we decided to raise the jib. Uh, unfortunately there was a decent amount of breeze. So we healed the boat over, uh, and we popped right off. But that's only about half of the story. <laughs> so throughout all this, about uh, two or 300 yards further down the channel from us, our friends on Whisper, previously mentioned, uh, were also hard aground, and they were calling out warnings on the radio. Wasn't there one other boat aground, too? Yeah. Yeah, there was at least one. There was two or three other yeah, boats, I think. It, it was, was a, Yeah, it was a cluster. A cluster. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it probably looked to everyone else like we just freaked out and drove like 90 degrees to the channel <laughs> and crashed. <laughs> um, but so it turns out there was a derelict trimaran that some guy had tied off to one of the temporary markers um, at the this inlet where there's shoaling. Um, and so he'd pulled the marker off um, station. It was underwater, I think, mostly, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah so you he, couldn't really see it. And, he, and, the, and the trimaran was at, actually obscuring it from view. Oh. So at least as I recall... Um, there was like a turn in the channel, and mm-hmm. as you're coming down, the the trimaran just looked like it was anchored, and so you couldn't actually see the marker, and it looked like you continued straight. Right, and there was a series of temporary markers yeah. marking the way because the inlet current and everything kind of made the sands on the bottom change a lot. So I guess yeah, Coast Guard was probably moving them around. Yeah. Well. 
So the trimaran pulled the marker uh, off off station and was obscuring it. So um, so there's several boats aground, and so we're kind of fiddling around trying to get off of our own little sandbar. Uh, and there's a parade of sailboats coming down the ICW. Whispers calling out a warning, and I think you know I. I Three, four boats were aground. A couple of them went aground while we were in the process of getting unaground. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just a, it was a disaster. It was a mess. But fortunately, the tide was rising and, and everyone got off in relative ease. Uh, and then we found out later, apparently the, um, the guy on the trimaran was, was sawing solar panels off of the nav buoys. Mm. <laughs> if you can imagine that. That's the kind of thing that only happens in Florida. That's it for this episode of The Bonnie Boat. Thanks for listening. I know time is my most scarce resource these days, so I appreciate you uh, choosing to spend your time listening here. One of the reasons I decided to throw my hat into the podcast ring is to get in touch with other like-minded sailing maniacs. To that end, if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email me at thebonnieboat at gmail.com. You can find us online at thebonnieboat.wordpress.com. And remember, to be a sailor, you don't need a YouTube channel with 100,000 video subscribers. You don't need an Instagram account with pictures of beautiful people in their bathing suits. You certainly don't need a podcast. You don't even need a boat. You just need to go sailing. Until next time, this is Firefly standing by on Channel 16.